Hello and welcome to the Faber Poetry Podcast. My name is George Miller, and I'm delighted to have as my guest in this programme Daljit Nagra, whose third collection, British Museum, is published by Faber in May 2017. Daljit was born into a family of first-generation Sikh Punjabi immigrants to this country and grew up in West London and Sheffield. Ten years ago, his acclaimed debut, Look, We Have Coming to Dover, won the Forward Prize both for Best First Collection and Best Single Poem. His new book, British Museum, sees a shift in tone from the more exclamatory, excitable, character-driven poems of Daljit's earlier work. Here there is a quieter, more questioning voice, in which he continues to explore in-betweenness and identities, both British and Indian. In the book, he examines great British institutions, such as the BBC, his Radio 4's first poet-in-residence, and the eponymous British Museum. A wide-ranging long poem on each of these institutions stands like a monumental column at either end of the collection. Monumental, but also interrogative. When I met Daljit recently at the Faber offices, just next door to the British Museum, I began by asking him if he saw the collection as having a central poem or poems. I haven't had that sort of thought before with the other collections, but with this one, I probably had an anti-central poem, which is Get Off My Poem Whitey. So I think I wrote that right at the end of my second collection, the Tipu Sultan collection. Um, and it's been sitting there, and I did want to put it in this collection. And I spoke to my editor, and I said, well, should I take it out? And he said he was very keen for it to go in there. And, because, uh, it's, because it's so different so in tone? deliberately offensive. I was trying to be trying to be racist, sexist, homophobic, everything possible in the poem. What's this splurge of hatred that's out there in the streets and almost kind of play with that. And a, and a kind of essentially a splurge of racial bile of an anxious black outsider, as it were, who is contradictory, doesn't really understand the politics. You know, the way people often speak and they just say one thing, then they'll say another, and they think they've been consistent and coherent. And really, it's just a hash of history and a hash of thoughts being jumbled together. Um, so I want to really keep that kind of spirit in the poem. But the rest of the book ended up being so much more about how to find a dignified way to deal with issues around nation states around global issues so it's a complete kick against those poems so it's a kind of completely contradictory poem so one way to resolve it was put it near the end as a kind of freshener you know if the book's going to one note if it were or in terms of mood or tone just to really kick the book against itself and shock the reader and hopefully offend the reader because i think offense is good Given that we've talked about the, the Whitey poem, maybe I could ask you to read a, a little bit from it at this stage to give a listener a flavour of it. OK, so I'll read the opening third of the poem. So it's called, Get Off My Poem, Whitey. Oi, get off my poem, Pinky. Your porky fingers lard my lean sheets. Look at my darky mug, my indie tag. Do you think I could think in the same old English? You keep to your standard. My standard's bastarded. Your editors boast they elect by taste. If they like me, they think I'm exotic. If they think I'm too English, I'm a mimic. Is it time for a fresh look, pasty face? I can write with two heads, yet you groan on the head you get. This poem bows to coconuts and half-castes. This poem bows to Farrakhan's and Hindutvas. For the brown-nosed reviews, 
for the brown nose rewards. The pink men poets are in bed with the pink men poets. The pink women poets are in bed with the pink women poets. I got no pinky, I'm out on a limb. I got no pinky, I'm out on a fat black limb. Let me ask you, how does a collection begin to take shape for you? You talked about, you know, certain certain themes, certain questions. Do you sort of sense it, you know, like a planet forming that is that it's gaining its own sort of its own gravity, its own momentum? Yeah, it, I think it's a couple of things, I guess. Firstly, it's a book comes on the weight of your previous book. So I was very aware my first book is about migrants coming to Britain, second about empire history. And at this book, I was sort of thinking I'd like to write about Britain itself because I've written quite a lot about Shakespeare and colonial Britain um, in my second collection. So this is the third collection. I want to focus much more on nation state. So... I had the Whitey poem early on and it's, it's got this kind of Norman Tebbit references and it's it's got loads of British cultural references, poetic ones as well as social political ones. So that was really a starting point actually and it's a perverse poem to begin with as a starting point. And then I was really consciously reading stuff about nation states and Britain to see if I could generate material about Britain uh, all the time thinking it probably won't happen because your brain often gives you what you don't want which is very frustrating. You want to write this poem and then something completely different comes out. But in this case, it, gradually poems started to, to merge forth. Uh, I think partly because of the, say, Middle East crisis, the Arab Spring, it really kind of shocked me and it made me not want to write the kind of big humorous poems I was trying to write in the first and second collection. And I had written some, but I felt a much quieter mood coming through my work this time. I think in response to kind of really horrific things happening so close to home. So, yeah, I think the, the kind of national poem emerged organically, bit by bit. One of the reviews I read of your first collection drew attention to the fact that you liked exclamation marks. There were lots of exclamation marks in titles, there were lots of exclamation marks peppered in the text. And it struck me very forcibly in in the new collection, British Museum, that the question mark is very, very present. There are a lot of questions in this book. Is that something you're aware of? Because questions obviously allow you to adopt a certain stance or adopt a certain distance or, or probe things. And it seemed to me it was a probing question. You're talking about, you know, big big issues that were in your head. And the question is your, is your sort of mode of, I guess, prodding the reader? Yeah, but very insightfully spotted, George. Yeah, absolutely. One incident I'll, I'll tell you about, which is probably relevant, is that I met my editor, Matthew Hollis, about three and a half years ago now. And I had some exclamatory poems, some humorous, but there was a whole vein of very quiet poems coming through. And he sort of very gently said, perhaps in this collection, we could see if we don't have many exclamations. Let's see if you can write a, a, a collection without exclamations. And I think that sort of was a sort of light bulb moment for me. So I went away and started thinking about the question mark. Because for me, it's about the music, punctu- the music punctuation, the exclamation. I want this ascending, rising voice that really captured the outsiders kind of knocking on the door of a nation. And with the question, I almost felt, you know, the way the voice rises up in a question and almost seems to turn in on itself with that kind of inquisitive note that music felt really important to me and I started it felt as though it connected with nation state thinking for me and it suddenly gave me a new way to think about nation state if you were talking about three and a half years ago 
the the great wave that would become Brexit had had not really started forming. So it was, it was, I guess it was kind of prescient of you if you were already probing this question of of national identity and 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 direction and purpose. Yeah, I think so. I think even if Brexit hadn't happened, I, my feeling has been um, over recent decades that Britain is questioning itself more and more and more all the time, whether it be because of its relationship with America or America questioning us or that special relationship or because of the, you know, the kind of the outsiders who live in Britain and then challenging the kind of white mainstream about its own status in the world and about its own voice, as it were. So I think that's been happening anyway. And I guess the question as a sort of technical mode for you as a poet allows you to explore themes without having to take to avert a position. You can you can question, you can shift, you can move around, you can pose the question from, from any vantage point, really. And also the other thing is you're forcing the reader to think, aren't you? If you're if you're stating something, however obliquely, you're still you're still uttering a proposition with a question. You're leaving it to the reader to actually think where is this question coming from and what do I make of it? Yeah, no, that it's exactly that I think. Um I mean the Keats line about, you know, don't trust poetry that has a palpable design on you is really relevant. A poem should be a dramatic construct. It should present perhaps one point of view against another, built within the very same fabric of the question itself. So hopefully the reader is being provoked, but not in a way that's prodding where the poem's prodding the finger at them, but just sort of giving them things to think about. And sometimes I think it's partly what isn't said in the poem and the reader comes to that question, which sometimes is probably the more interesting question that the poet hasn't written in the poem. You use the word our, oh, you are a great deal in this book. Mm. And that makes the reader think, well, who who is speaking and for whom are they speaking on behalf of whom? When they say our, what are they claiming? And what lies outside the circumference of our? What 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 is what is over there, as it were? Well, again, was that was that something that you were consciously exploring the, the you know the, the the register of? Yeah, I think I was in certain ways. It started happening towards the end of my second collection about who am I? Am I speaking on behalf of? Indian migrants or am I speaking on behalf of a nation state or on behalf of white middle class people so that was there towards the end of the second collection I think the, the, the Whitey poem going back to that poem I talk about you know when I won the Ford Prize for best poem the headline was about migrant son and I, in a way that was a real shock to me to see it in the papers I, I always felt I'd hidden my identity that I was one of us and actually, it's a very good story to be seen as a migrant son being successful. But for me, it was an embarrassing moment. So I want to really think about that as well. So who, when I'm speaking, am I speaking as one of us? Well, who is one of us? So I, I mean, in some cases, the poems are written almost to have this effect of parody. So if I'm not white English, and I'm an outsider, but I'm talking about, you know, my Vox Populi Vox Day poem, and I, I'm talking about who are we at root, and questioning British identity by referring to loads of British people. Is that a kind of mocking voice? Or is that an earnest, sincere voice? And it's something I don't know the answer to. You're kind of rejecting the binary, aren't you? It seemed to me the poems themselves are rejecting the binary, because in the Whitey poem, the exotic versus the mimic comes up. And that's something that was in your first collection. You know, do you read in the Gunga Din style or do you play it in inverted commas straight? And it seemed to me that, that what you're doing is you're, you're saying that you don't have to, well, I mean, it's, it's a false dichotomy and you're, you're sort of exploring the territory in between or, 
or what comes from being forced into a false dichotomy? Yeah, I think that's where, it's a very interesting observation, because I think that's where the play in poetry is. That's where I think I found my license from that first poem on. Where is somebody being earnest and where are they being playful? Where are they being one-dimensional or complex? And binaries are really scary things and, and British history is so built on binaries because any nation-state history is built on binaries. It has to be the self and other. So the role of the poet is to kind of go through those cracks and speak from them, I think, and speak in a, in a suggestive, manipulative parodic comic ironic way and particularly in island history and that's another that's another light motif it seemed to me in the book that great britain is an island and that you know surrounded by sea and separate and and that that leads to certain mentalities or certain ways of thinking about us whoever we are versus others yeah, absolutely. I mean, yeah, islands are cut off from, you know, a mainstream. Um, and coming from my parents' background is from Punjab, India, it's kind of whole landlocked area. Growing up in Britain, I'm much more aware of a, an island nation. And also thinking environmentally, so many islands are endangered because of li- rising levels of water. I don't need to really touch on that. I think that's kind of implicit in the poem that islands are endangered places. And Britain itself feels an endangered place because it, in a healthy way, it makes itself endangered by allowing itself to question itself. But also it's, it's becoming torn apart. Um, and we feel that much more in 2017 right now. We are so much more polarised than when I was younger. I didn't feel that same polarity. So, yeah, the nation itself is endangered in so many ways. Maybe, Daljit, this is a good point for me to ask you to read one of those very interrogative poems. Yeah, I'll read um, my second poem into the collection. I have no Latin, so I've picked up that kind of um, popular Latin that people pick up. So this title, I'm probably not even saying it in the right way, but it is Vox Populi, Vox Dei. Who are we at root? To know this is to know our range, the cast of characters we banked. Weren't we once a plucky bunch in battle, led by Drake and Nelson? Wherever we die, turned Britain forever. An amphibious tribe who fished, however far we ventured, our rivers coursed within us to chant our poetic names. Roll on, sweet Avon, sweet ooze. The apple fell on Newton, so we walked tall. Stay tall for Brunel and Darwin. Who'd speak for our garden utopias? Not Clive of India, not Kitchener's finger, but John Barleycorn, the green man. Weren't we ruled by black emperors? Our first couple of Obama glamour, Septimius Severus and Julia. Who else to deepen us? Surely Julian of Norwich in her Albion of divine love, the Tolpuddle Martyrs. What heritage or broch or crop of skyline stone abounds us with murmurs of ancient wisdom? So much at root. What ramparts of fear have we built? Have we been severed from the world? Could we seek guidance from the Virgin Queen, the Lady of the Lamp? So we're bold as Boudicca, noble as Livingston and Bevan. That really brings us to Meditations on the British Museum, the long poem with which you 
you finish the book and there, much as you did in the poem about Broadcasting House, you're placing yourself at the centre of a, a large British institution and, and, and interrogating it, asking some, some hard questions about what you're surrounded by and what it means, what, how these things came to be there, mm. what value we ascribe to them, why we ascribe that value. Yeah. The poem really started a couple of years after um, writing a poem about the Globe Theatre, which was, again, a big empire poem for me. And I wanted to do another one of those because I really enjoyed writing and I spent a couple of years writing the Globe one. And the same with this, I think I spent about two, three years trying to get it right. And I like the idea of taking a big institution or a big place and trying to match the language to suit that, but also trying to find parameters of thought, trying to find a way to think about these institutions, which is, you know, initially it feels really hard. I think, how the hell do I write about this? Because the more you think about it, the more material it generates in this kind of Foucault-like way. So it's, it, the challenge was really to find ways to think about Britain again. And the, the Globe poem was really for me to think about what I should write about as a black British person. So this poem was really trying to address that, take that poem to the next stage. And I found myself really finding to my surprise that I wanted to write about it by thinking about the role of poetry, how poetry can help me think about the British Museum, but also help me think about global politics. And I wasn't expecting myself to go in that direction. I've got another poem which I've written about T.S. Eliot where I start thinking about the role of poetry as well. So in, in a sense, it became about the role of poetry, but also the role of this institution, how it can educate us about Britain's role in the globe. And am I right, Daljit, in seeing a thread going through the book of a sort of looking for values, looking so not just looking for identity, but for looking for, use the word ideals, I think a few times, looking for what is durable and lasting and worth subscribing to. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, there's a kind of the personal line, I think, in the book of the family. And so on a personal level, they, they become my ideals. But yeah, constantly thinking about national ideals. But I think they have to come from the personal as well, because each person is their own citizen, have their own identity. But yeah, helping people to really question what might be solid things for us, lasting things, amongst this kind of kerfuffle of noise about British identity. I know, and I just want to just really raise some questions about that and just throw some images in of British identity and see whether people felt they were pertinent or whether we should see ourselves as beyond nation state and actually globally connected, which is more interesting. Is it better to be just nationally connected and think coherently in that sense or in a wider picture? You mentioned Indian identity a moment ago, and that's another, the subject of, of, of several other poems in the collection particularly this sense that the first generation who came to this country are now beginning to disappear. And so there's a sort of commemorative and a celebratory sense there. And I guess, I guess it ties in with, with, with you sort of becoming a, a, a generation older and, and being a parent and, uh, and so on. Can you, can you say a little bit about, about those poems? And that, were they something that you wouldn't have written 10, 15 years ago, for example? Yeah, absolutely. I don't think I'd written that one 10, 15 years ago. It's one called Nagajar, quite a long poem. And I think I had to get through other material in the first and second collection before I got to that one. And that felt like a big breakthrough for me because it was much calmer, a myth-like, commemorative, as you say, poem. And really sort of recognising and celebrating that first generation who came to Britain from 1950s. We're talking 57, 58 onwards, whether it be the Caribbean community came over or the Indian community and in my own head it all felt the same to me when I was writing that poem though I specifically wrote about my parents village 
and they're, they're all slowly passing away one by one now you know and that, that it felt very important to suddenly recognize that 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 first generation came here were actually almost entirely uneducated people they were the ordinary village people because they were going to do the labor jobs and and then we've had a generation of writers before people like myself you know the Hanif Qureshis and Salman Rushdie's but they, they all came from these educated sophisticated backgrounds and it's really important for people of people like myself and of my generation who are the children of those ordinary people to start writing about that generation because they made a massive contribution and it's easy to forget that you know the corner shops the Indian restaurants they were very very ordinary people and my parents had a corner shop and most of my relatives have had corner shops and all my relatives are completely uneducated in some cases they'd never been to school my mother hadn't my mother never had a day of school my dad got hardly any English or hardly any education and yet these people have had you know you know financially earned in factories and bought their own businesses so it's a massive contribution whether it be in the crude sense of tax or cultural contribution so it, I think it felt, I felt it was time to see them as part of the British Museum as it were they are part of our museum of our history and you want to celebrate them and you also want to say that they, in a way, made you, you and your generation. But there's also the poignancy of them not really understanding your generation too. That 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 comes out. There's that tension of, of them having enabled the life you lead by their sacrifices, but the sort of cultural misunderstandings or just a lot to to take on board how how your generation lived compared to theirs yeah i think so. i think in the my first collection i've written one or two poems but in a sort of more humorous kind of wittier way uh, and these are hopefully quieter more thoughtful there's one about the mother uh, really about my mother who can't say my wife's name which is Catherine. Uh, it's a question of if she can't say it or won't say it and it's very hard for it to accept the life I've, you know, developed into. I've got two children from this dual heritage. It's very hard for my parents to accept. You know, they're very traditional from that kind of Sikh Punjabi community and they expected the arranged marriage, all that sort of thing. So th there has to be that tension and there's so much lost along the way for that first generation. It has to be recognised as well. It's not just the, the ones who gained. We know about them. They're, they're well well mixed into the British, British community and they speak English and they get on. But there, there, there are those ones who don't speak English, like my mum who lived there about lived there about 50 years now, over 50 years, and she speaks hardly any English. She learnt some shopkeeper English and, you know, essentially she, she worked in a factory which was 99% Indians working there from the same villages as her. And now she lives in Hayes in West London, surrounded by Indian families, again from the villages. So in a sense, she lived most of her life in an Indian community, apart from the time we ran a shop, but all the time living in Britain, half the year, my parents live in India. So there's there's been a big loss for them. But also I want to recognise the fact that, you know, they are still immersed in their community, are very happy and aren't a threat to British values or British life because in their own ways they've adapted. You know, they, they, they've learnt to eat different types of food while here. They, you know, they pay their taxes, they do, they've done their work, all those sort of things. Maybe this is a good point then, Daljit, for you to read that poem you mentioned, Cane. Okay, so it's partly thinking about the sugarcane fields, my parents' background, you know, they make a, they, they made their money from the sugar now, but, you know, it was also owned by the empire, the British in the past, so it's partly thinking about that. So poem's called Cane. No English dork at home, my mother booms in Punjabi. Our carpets bloom florals from where she sobs at each Punjab film when lovers croon along sugarcane fields. 
I turn my head from her soppy pollywood. She cries that my tongue is sold on a language that stole her life for the rootless exchange, like sugar that travelled one way, and offers to arrange me a wife and a corner shop. When I steal off to study for an English degree, at our shop back door, she stands between us to hold me firm and sob, nor speak white girls. She's been here so long that I can't follow how she won't ripen with time. Only when torn does she meet my sweetheart, who bears our roses. My mum blushes to say, Betty kind. Our tongues are reined in. I keep my own counsel and let the air go bitter when she won't sustain Catherine. Once when she called, instead of she, she said the name aloud. It was cut down to Cain. I mean, one of the things I say was, I mean, I mentioned the, the Punjabi films I used to watch. They're sort of Pakistani Punjabi films or an Indian Punjabi uh, Indian, Indian Punjab doesn't have any cinema industry, but that that those kind of nostalgic films, those wonderfully sentimental films, were the expectations of my parents that both my brother and myself would have arranged marriages and stay within the community. So for them to see me move off, but it's been pretty horrifying experience for them. It's been a humiliating experience for them in the eyes of the community, because they feel they've been bad parents in the eyes of others you know because it's the shame on a culture so they feel kind of shamed uh, you know so my it's hard for my mum to ripen that sense and she's had to ripen in the blushing sense instead in, and I think that was probably there for me if I think of you know if you read the poem from an Indian perspective it has that from an English perspective it probably has something else but that kind of she I think she walks around with a redness in her face you know the humiliation that she has to bear whilst I have these children with this woman who can't speak Punjabi <laughs> and isn't from the villages in Punjab. So, uh, yeah, I think it's, it's, it's kind of, um, it started off as a poem of frustration for me with my parents. But in the end, I think poetry is healing and it's cathartic. Um, in the end, I found myself sympathising with her much more than myself. Uh, when I talk about, you know, letting the air go bitter and holding my own counsel. And maybe I should make more effort to bridge the gap between us because I'm supposed to be the educated one but it's very hard it's very hard Daljit we're, we're sitting in a room at Faber and Faber in the Faber archive and we've got a bust of T.S. Eliot looking over our shoulder and there's a poem in which you you engage with Eliot and then more widely really I guess you could you could say well you know the whole the whole purpose of poetry or the whole reason that you engage with poetry. Can you tell me a little bit about that? Because it's, it's a fascinating poem because it's talking about sort of really big themes, but it's also taking place in your head when you're visiting the, the local dump. And I thought that was a, that was a marvellous sort of juxtaposition. So tell me, tell me a bit about how that, how that sort of came about. Uh, it came about from a genuine incident where, you know, quite often I go to the rubbish dump every now and then. Uh, my father-in-law bought me the collected works of T.S. Eliot, read by himself on CD. So I, I, it's, it's probably my favourite CD to play in the car, actually, and I play it quite a lot. So often when I'm going down to dump, I'll play that, which is obviously convenient, I know, given that Eliot wrote Wasteland 
that does time with that and you know as I get older I start thinking you know I'm sort of 50 I've got two young children what am I doing you know some days I'm at home just playing around writing poems what's the value of them and with you know the the world the way it is what value of poetry you know at the end of the day and I think I've, I've written 50 words what what is the value of that so a poet needs to be questioned I'm sure we all question are we just you know song and dance artists you know go out there do a reading get paid for it and make a living um, and I feel like that sometimes just a performer you know kind of performing monkey getting out there doing my thing getting paid and paying the bills great or does poetry have more value and and I guess Elliot suddenly felt really important because I started doing some research and reading about, you know, people like Kamal Braithwaite and, and the Caribbean poets of the empire and the Indians of the empire were really switched on by Elliot. And, and in particular, um, Braithwaite talks about how we were, he says we were turned on in that cool sense of turned on by Elliot's voice, this kind of mock English voice. It was the voice, he says, rather than the actual poems on the page. So that, that really, really interested me, the, the idea that the communication, the oral experience of poetry, but also that poetry, if it's subversive, it can give voice to people who feel subverted, who feel, you know, isolated or alienated. Poetry can sometimes help us clean language up again after it becomes a mess, because language in poetry has a gravitas, has a lift. It's not cheapened by a political rhetoric. It's not political rhetoric, and rhetoric can sometimes cheapen and tarnish language and in the way that Hitler had tarnished language, in the way that so many politicians right now are tarnishing our sacred language, the very words we use are coming through their mouths and being violated and cheapened. A poet has an imagination. They can say what they want. That is really scary to people. So poetry, by not being political, ironically, can be deeply political, and it threatens people. It threatens leaders because it, it demonstrates freedom. I was talking to Daljit Nagra about his new collection, British Museum, which is available now in hardback. For more information about the book, visit faber.co.uk. The whole podcast archive is available on SoundCloud. It now amounts to over 100 hours of interviews and features many Faber poets. Just search for Faber Books SoundCloud. Until next time, thank you very much for listening. And goodbye.